0: From Koningstein Road in the east to Cedar Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, it's Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai magazines, the monthly and Quarterly. This episode, our guest is Judith Hale Norris, who's the former Chief Staff Counsel for the District of Columbia, U.S. Court of Appeals which is like the warm-up bench for the Supreme Court, where she knew many of the current and former justices. She's also been a Chief Staff Attorney for the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit in Boston, and served as an Assistant U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts and a trial and appellate attorney for the Department of Justice. Now, she's also very involved in community, where she's on a Board of Trustees for the Community Memorial Health System, and also on the board of the Ojai Valley Community Hospital Foundation. She just finished a term on the board of the Ojai Women's Fund as president, and she's also on the Ojai Music Festival Women's Committee, where she's held the positions of chair and president, respectively. We're here now to talk about approximately the vacancy on the Supreme Court with the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer, but also a lot of local Ojai topics. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Judy, thanks for joining us.
1: Delighted to be here, Brad.
0: Yeah, I've been meaning to get you on for a while. I guess the proximate cause is Stephen Breyer is retiring. And, well, there's a lot of stuff going on in the courts. And as an experienced attorney, there's a lot that you can share with us about everything going on. I mean, one of the reasons I do the podcast is there's just so many highly competent, talented people who have chosen to live here, that virtually any issue, there's a local expert. So I don't, uh, I just really happy to have you here. And I'm fascinated by all the ins and outs. So I'm just wondering, what do you think is the next steps going on for this selection process? I know that uh, President Biden has floated a few names, and I think even you might be familiar with some of those.
1: Right. You know, these are obviously very, very interesting times with Stephen Breyer's retirement. And when you're asking me what's going on behind the scenes, I know what the public knows. Very much uh, vetting, they're thoroughly vetting candidates that are going, going to be a very qualified black woman. And the pool of candidates is amazing. Um, I personally have a favorite, um, Judge uh, Brown Jackson, who not only has a stellar academic background, but also practiced law so she knows what it is like for attorneys to bring cases before. And then also, Brett, what's so important is she was a federal district court judge and now is on what I call my old court, the US Court of Appeals for the D C Circuit, and she's serving Which there is as the, a judge. Yes. That's where
0: they get groomed for yes. Supreme Court. A lot of the Supreme Court justices come. From
1: yes, they certainly court. they certainly do.
0: And what, what what is the next steps now? I mean, they're doing the vetting in the background. When do they bring it to the Senate? And I know that supposedly there's four or five Republicans that Indicated the slate that Biden proposed is acceptable to them, mm-hmm. so that's that's good. I mean, it isn't going to be as bitter and drawn out as it was with Justice Kavanaugh, for example,
1: or with Judge Bork.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the first uh, justice or the first um, first uh, lawyer whose name became a verb. That's right, he was Borked. borked.
1: That's true, but also I think that's...
0: Were you in D.C. around
1: that time? Yes. No, we had just moved to California at that time, but I had worked very, very closely with uh, Judge Bork on the D.C. Circuit. And, um, you know, my impression at that point was he was basically a justice in waiting. Yeah. That, uh, you know, the rumor was is that he was going to be appointed next... And I think a lot of people on the court thought that too.
0: <laughs> and that was.
1: Um, that was in uh, Reagan's
0: first term, or no? This
1: was this was. Uh, oh, like eighty-seven, eighty-eight. Th- this that's right. This was Reagan's, uh, and it was in um, the early '80s. He w- he was appointed to the D.C. Circuit, I think, in 1982.
0: Okay. And now, when he was put forward, just so people don't know, it was. A very, it was like a flashpoint in history. Like the, I think the Democrats had won the midterms in 1986. They were feeling their oats. And I think Joe Biden himself was on the Judiciary Committee, That's the Senate true. Judiciary Committee. But he was replacing Thurgood Marshall. Is that what I remember? Or who? Or maybe not. Maybe Thurgood Marshall was more in the
1: 90s. No, it wasn't. I, I don't recall exactly who it was, but I don't think yeah. it was Marshall.
0: But they had to withdraw his nomination because of some intemperate papers and opinions he'd written. And he was seen basically as an ideologue rather than a, a jurist. Is well, that I think there's more
1: than that. I think the other, um, he was very well known for his part in the Saturday Night Massacre. Oh, that's right. He signed the off Water on the, yeah. So what he did was he actually fired Archibald Cox.
0: The special prosecutor. The special
1: prosecutor. And just of to go back in history, I actually was there for the, the Saturday, Saturday Night, Night, Night Massacre, Massacre. Wow. as a young lawyer at the U.S. Justice Department. What happened was is that uh, Elliot Richardson and Ruckles House and Bork were so concerned that the Justice Department would leave in mass after the firing of Cox yeah. that they brought all of the Justice Department together on October 22nd. And Monday. you were in that meeting? I was up in the balcony overlooking the three men telling us that the government would go on, that we were to stay there and do our jobs. And ironically, um, to see that, and then to be able to work almost daily with Bork when I became Chief Staff Counsel and can talk to him about that, it was just such a fascinating time. Yeah,
0: you're an eyewitness. Even maybe verging on being a participant.
1: Well, the participant part of it is is that we had very good friends that were on the special prosecutors' uh, team, and you know, most everyone that I knew had somebody that was involved in one way or another. Yeah, I think
0: people uh, don't they see Washington as this abstract thing, but for you, it's like a small town, like you know. It was
1: wonderful. I mean. and it, what was so marvelous for me, and I'm getting off a little bit off track, but I think it's so important for people to know. I mean, back when I was a young lawyer, I mean, when I went to law school or applied, they told me they did not want women. Oh, man. <laughs> so, so when actually I went to the U.S. Justice Department to work, it was an equal opportunity employer. Is that why you went there? No, it was was... not at all. I went there because um, my husband, Bill, the Coast Guard, offered to send Bill to law school all expenses paid. He had gone to the U.S. Coast Guard Academy and and had four years obligated service. When he came back from Vietnam, they offered... To send him to school if he stayed in the Coast Guard. Yeah. Well, I had already been um, past the bar and whatever. We picked up and moved. Bill went to George Washington, and I went to the Justice Department, and um, it was just wonderful.
0: Yeah. What a what a hinge of history those like early seventies. I'm imagining with. Watergate. Exactly. Yeah. Did you feel when uh, Saturday night when Archibald Cox got fired that that was, you know, you were in the right place or the wrong place? Did you feel like you had some, well, moral I was there... obligation to stay or go, or were you torn? Was it like what was your pro- what was going through your head?
1: Well, if I ever had that, I was certainly ensured that it was basically our duty to stay at the Justice Department and make certain that things were going yeah. to run and run on time, and um, when you when you take that oath as a government attorney, uh, you, you really are very uh, imbued with a sense of obligation and justice. Yeah. I know that sounds trite, but it's definitely true, and well, we know. felt that. Yeah. The other part about it is, you know, I certainly saw the angst that it did cause one of my close friends that was on uh, a special prosecutor. But clearly, the fact that we were assured that all would be well, the government would go on, that we all went back to work.
0: Yeah. Now, it didn't, uh, Nixon was not able to. Now, I forgot exactly how. Now, just so to back up a little bit, Nixon firing the special prosecutor was Basically declaring himself above the law, that he was not obligated to respond to congressional inquiries and so forth, and that he could do whatever he wanted. I think it was Archibald Cox was getting closer. I think they still hadn't found the tapes yet, which was the smoking gun.
1: Yeah, you know, that's right. Uh, from my recollection, um, is that they rec- they found out there were tapes and archibald cox sought to subpoena them yeah. and then what happened was uh nixon and the special Watergate C- committee worked out what was called the stennis agreement where john stennis who was notoriously hard of hearing oh, was yeah. supposed that to listen funny. to all the tapes and say which ones were relevant, which ones were not, and bring them back to Cox and the committee. And Cox refused to have that happen.
0: Yeah. And
1: then Nixon demanded that he cease and desist, basically, seeking any type of records, and uh, ordered um, the attorney general to... Which was Richardson at that time to fire him. Richardson said I can't do that. I promised when I appointed him as a special prosecutor that I would be fair and only fire him for cause and this is not cause. And then Ruckel's house was next in line and he would not fire Cox either and it was left to Bork. And I always wondered how the three of them could be up on the stage at the Justice Department. All together. All together, seeing very supportive and collaborative. And I had the chance to sit down when I had my, I as I said, as Chief Staff Counsel, I met with Bork regularly and had the opportunity to ask him that. And he said that Ruckel's House and Richardson encouraged him to stay on because what he was planning to do was fire cogs and resign and they said don't do that please stay because if you don't stay and continue it the investigation may end and so what Bork did was he agreed to stay on, and he appointed Leon Jaworski to be the special prosecutor, and the rest is history.
0: So it was a crisis of conscience for him, but he was encouraged to follow through with it, knowing that it would carry on.
1: I, I and otherwise, it
0: could have just been a bunch of politi- political hacks that got in there, and goodness knows what I, would have resulted. You know, resulted. Brett, I
1: think that's right. But there was another part of it, too, is he felt very strongly that Cox was insubordinate. So the he was not against the firing of Cox for that reason, but he was going to resign, but then was convinced to stay on. yeah. But he felt very strongly that the investigation should continue, so clearly um, that was very beneficial to the United States.
0: Sure. Do you feel like he got railroaded in his uh, confirmation hearings?
1: I you know, know, at the time, I, it was very interesting for me because I had a chance to see these judges as really lovely people. And so when I saw what happened, and it really was Ted Kennedy. uh, The lion of the Senate. That's right, coming and, as Bork said, saying all these lies about him. I mean, he never recovered from that. And also, Mm -hmm. again, he was not getting a lot of support because he was still, you had a lot of, uh, you know, people against him because of his role in Saturday Night
0: Massacre. Yeah, settling scores.
1: Yeah, and then also what happened, he had uh, very strong uh, uh, women agitators, uh, rightfully so, I think. They were very, very concerned that he was going to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is an interesting thread from then to now.
0: Because, yeah, I I guess it's hitting the docket and whatever the whatever the case that they've selected is stops up. it's been yeah. argued June? well usual, usually ruling?
1: the decisions come out at that point
0: and usually on a tuesday right is that scotus day yes. tuesdays they issue their opinions
1: you know i not positive <laughs> yeah they come out so what do a you what,
0: what do you think roe v wade the dustbin of history now
1: well, I'm hoping not, um, for obviously for a variety of reasons. Uh, but looking at or listening to the arguments, um, I'm I'm concerned. But I'm concerned on many levels. I'm concerned as a lawyer, and the idea that solid precedent could starry deceases. Yeah. Uh, could be undermined in such a way. I very well be that it could be so narrowed that the effect of Roe it's v. Wade is no longer. Yeah. But one of the things you've got to be very concerned about when uh, you know, the normal norms are not followed or precedent is not followed, what is next?
0: That's right. It is a slippery slope because there's so much sophistry going on anyway, like people will argue with this, maybe, I don't want to say bad faith, but they're going to argue whatever is in their interest. And if you get to a point where there's no hard and fast rules or points of decision, then who knows? It's going to be, it's going to be bad. It's going to get messy and ugly
1: well, the other thing you hope so much, and of course, the court has been so, the Supreme Court has been so criticized about this, is how political it's come. I know that they've gone out and given speeches and argued that they're not, but the, the, if you overturn precedent, you are very much subject to yeah. saying that you're looking at your own personal. Uh, yeah, views. or
0: like Bush v. Gore, I think was the first moment where I realized, that, whoa, these are not floating above it. They just basically shut it down the whole the count in Florida. And there's a, a lot that goes into that, and but it was such a party line vote, the decision, of yeah, five th- four. I
1: think that also, and then also what you have on the court now is a completely different way of viewing the Constitution. You had it with, uh, clearly with Justice Scalia. An
0: originalist. Is that the term?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's really looking at the original text of the Constitution and applying that. Where you had Justice Ginsburg and others that believe that the Constitution is a living document and yeah, guides you.
0: I hope so, because, you know, black people were three fifths of a citizen. If you're going to go back and be a construct or a originalist, then that's basically where you're going to end up. It was a completely different time and context. I feel what you're looking for is principles of well, uh, deliberation and. And the intent, based on changing circumstances, the world is not the same as it was 230 years ago.
1: So, I agree. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, Roe v. Wade, to get back to that, I, something like, I don't know, I should have done some homework, but like 18 or 19 states are just, within seconds, they will ban abortions in their in their states. And just the... Whatever that means, I mean, I understand the moral crisis that people have on both sides of that issue, but to say that a woman's womb is the property of the state, basically, that she doesn't have the any decision in that, it's just like, it does have a very handmaid's tale feel to it.
1: Well, you know, what I would really strongly recommend that people do is listen to, to the argument in the Dobbs case by the Solicitor General, uh, in the Dobbs she did case. in the Dobbs case. She did an excellent job, and so did uh, the other women rep, uh, representing. Uh, they they really laid out some of the history and what would happen. The problem with some of the very very restrictive laws now they're not even uh, giving any. Uh, exceptions for rape or incest.
0: And bounties.
1: For but, but that, that Uber was, drivers
0: and everyone else that comes well, along.
1: I mean, that Texas, that was the Texas law. Yeah. And um, that was very frightening. I mean, it yeah, And, it's and dark. because one of the reasons it's so dark is not just the subject matter, but also what happened on that, it was designed specifically. To take the case in controversy out of the court system that normally resolves these issues. Yeah, it was to make it done. Legislative was than So that jur- was. Juris. In other words, who has standing to bring this particular case? And that's what made this so troubling. And yeah. also, what was so troubling and uh, what happened was that you did not have the Supreme Court staying it, staying that decision.
0: Well, that was right after Amy Coney Barrett got she's on She's made That's, a
1: difference on the she's, court, she's too. She's been yeah.
0: a, a 6-3 yeah. Republican. It's interesting to me, just stepping back and looking, basically the Democrats have won seven out of the last popular votes, seven out of the last eight popular votes, mm-hmm. and the court balance is completely shifted in that, in that time. Like, these... You know the because well the electoral college for two of those, and then just the timing like Ruth Gator binsburg, who I know you're you're A acquainted with, yeah. <laughs> but I feel bad if that's gonna be her legacy that she didn't get out when the getting was good and allow Obama to replace her, and also not allowing Merrick Garland to be seated that was that was tragic Are you. Nine or 10, 11 months before an election. And yeah, that, Mitch was McConnell was able to.
1: that was just unprecedented and um, disingenuous. It's the, probably the yeah, most disingenuous. That's the thing sophistry that I'm talking about. Just yeah.
0: whatever the fake arguments they can hammer on people to get them in line. It's just really, it's always been like this. People say, oh, it's, you know. These constitutional crises—you were there with Watergate. Did you know Bill Bill Gilbreth?
1: I I knew knew Bill Grip, Bill, Grip, Bill, Gilbreth when I came to Ohio, and yeah, was delighted. Another to friend have... of the
0: pod, a dearly departed friend.
1: Yeah, he's just wonderful, and uh, we certainly had a lot of interesting conversations about Watergate. So,
0: yeah, how interesting—all these currents. It, swirl around all these big issues and there's always some point of Ohi connection to just about anything i just love that exactly. yeah so about the justice Breyer, i mean there was like pushes to get him to retire right from biden's election on i think he knows that if the republicans as it appears likely win uh, midterms then there's there's no chance that Biden will get to replace another justice. Republicans play hardball, that's for sure. They don't they don't really care about they care about winning. And and they've done a remarkable job. They've really, I mean, for whatever harm it's gonna to do to the country and especially women's rights and the atavism and the backsliding that's gonna go on. They're really good at it.
1: Well, if uh, in terms of Breyer, Um, You know, I've had the pleasure of of meeting him. He was um, the law clerk to one of the judges I worked very closely with on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. And then Mrs. Breyer uh, was on the First Circuit serving, was a judge on the First Circuit before going to uh, the Supreme Court, and he actually was the counsel um, in the Senate, he understands
0: the process. all
1: of the process, when he needed to do this. But I read recently that uh, the theory is is that he decided on his own terms that this was now. And one of the reasons is that he was very concerned about uh, seeing his legacy undermined like on the current... Uh, yeah, so that... What he wanted to do was step down and, um, you know, and he did it on his own terms.
0: Yeah. But well, he's a the, lovely person. Oh, I it might, seems like yeah, he's very... he really uh, is. He really is. He's and a he, great deliberator.
1: And he also is, uh, was someone that was ex- very good about hiring diverse law clerks. In fact, the... Uh, judge that I just mentioned when we first started talking, Judge Brown Jackson, clerked for him on the Supreme Court.
0: Well, that's a lot of, a lot of great experience. Now, now to go back to Roe v. Wade, I understand that Justice Ginsburg did wish that because she was a really litigating hard back in now, whatever that was, 1973, she wanted to bring a different case that was. Uh,
1: I think it was an Air Force
0: case. captain female who was being basically forced to get an abortion. I think that's, that's the correct. basic yes. Yeah. So how how did the the Norma Jean McCorby, which became Roe, how did that case get chosen rather than the other one, which I think would have locked the whatever you call that uh, not star deceased, so There's another word for that precedent. That would have been a much better or much harder for people to have fought against. That it's like uh, discrimination, or because they can't force a man to get an abortion.
1: Basically, and again, this is where I had such an advantage of being being able to discuss this with with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because I was always so surprised when I heard her in a speech say that, because I knew she was such a proponent of. you know, obviously equal yeah, rights for women, right. So what happened was she felt that the Strunk case had facts that would be so appealing to the Supreme Court justices in argument. In other words, here you have a situation where a woman is not seeking an abortion, she is seeking to keep the child, but the service that she was in said, no, in order for you to remain as an officer, you have to abort that child. She was willing to give the child up for adoption, but her religious uh, uh, mm-hmm. preferences did not allow her to have an abortion. She did not feel allow her to have yeah. an abortion. So what happened was, is that... Um, the her uh, service realized that they had a very good chance of losing that case and changed the uh, requirements, and they allowed her to stay in. And yeah. I think she had the baby, and it gave it up. So then what happened is Solicitor General Erwin Griswold Said er, not
0: Erwin Griswold. No, he, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's a great name, though. I love yeah, that name.
1: Yeah, uh, who was Solicitor General at that time said, Okay, we're dismissing this case because it is now moot.
0: Yeah, so
1: there wasn't the opportunity to bring that case forward to but the Supreme Court. But had Justice Ginsburg
0: had her way, they would have.
1: Now, you know, it, that and the was, reason the way he would have
0: picked selected that. case. Well, but
1: the, and there's also a very strong reason um, for that. Is she thought that it would be decided on stronger constitutional yeah. grounds, not right of privacy as Roe v. Wade. So there's lots of reasons, but um, ironically, the fact that Ginsburg Justice Ginsburg wrote that in. Uh, in a paper and gave a speech on it, uh, people misinterpreted that, that she was uh, weak on rights. And mm-hmm. that was not the case at all. I mean, she felt so strongly about yeah. bringing this forward that she wanted to do it the way she uh, litigated so well, is that she did it incrementally. She decided do it a step at a time. Yeah, build so that a foundation. You, absolutely, Brett. So then you can bring people behind you, and you bring them on board. Yeah. And I know she felt with Roe v. Wade that, um, that there a lot of the states were not behind this. And consequently, you can see that the yeah, challenge that it's is now. Yeah, become very fractious. Exactly. In a way that it
0: might not. It, that, everything, the rise of the evangelical movement. The There's a wonderful Rick Perlstein book, well, a bunch of wonderful Rick Perlstein books, but he talks about the rise of Reagan, and I can't remember the period between Nixon and Reagan. I wish I could remember the name of it, not Shadowlands or something, but he's great books, but he talks about how these Christian organizations realized that this was their issue that they were going to be able to send out their mailers and their solicitations and build up a base. And Phyllis Schlafly got involved with the Equal Rights Amendment. And this this period of history, we're living in the consequences of that today when we look at the Supreme Court with a 6-3 conservative majority because they played the long game. They built the infrastructure of think tanks and nonprofits and fundraising apparatus to make this happen. And that's how they end up with a Supreme Court majority when they've lost seven out of the last eight popular elections. It's really remarkable.
1: They've also done it another way, too, um, which I found fascinating, is that uh, when uh, Trump was running he provided a list of potential justices oh, yeah, from the Federalist that Society. had been vetted by yeah. the Federalist Society. But what I found so interesting, because I was looking yeah. at Amy Coleman Barrett's background, is that they identified when she was in law school that she was an, so bright and talented that basically she was groomed and did all the right things. I mean, she's yeah. clearly extremely smart and uh, whatever. And um, was one of the ones. Whose yeah, name that's was like a 20,
0: 25 year project. That's
1: right. I mean, yeah. um, but that also was very different. Is uh, in years past, the way that uh, judges are nominated, both to the uh, district court, federal court, and to Supreme Court, you also had Uh, the kind of advice and consent of the senators of the state where that person was coming from. So the fact that you had all of these names advanced by the Federalist Society was very, very different than the normal practice that was done in the past. In other words, they were identified differently than what I have been reading was done over the years.
0: Yeah, it's a program. They're so, executing very efficiently.
1: You know, well, if you believe very strongly in in your position, they have done it well.
0: Yeah. I think there's some lessons for liberals there about organizing and really uh sticking to your guns, I think.
1: Well, I think the thing about it is is what is so different to me having grown up as a Massachusetts Republican that now yeah. Everybody that was that I'm is back probably going to, like a Edward, Edward Brooke was absolutely, their senator. Absolutely, Edward yeah. Brooke. Absolutely. And um, I can remember, as a, a kid, um, going to the Democratic clambakes. Yeah. I mean, there was such... That's where the fun was. Well, not only that, it was a situation that people may have had different ideas than you did, different political ideas certainly religious ideas but you were not the enemy
0: no you
1: could get together could
0: be opponents without A- being enemies. Ab-
1: absolutely and to yeah, learn the tip the w-
0: o'neill school of politics
1: the tip o'neill school uh again this is exactly what i witnessed on the court of appeals is the just marvelous relationship between ruth bader ginsburg and Justice Scalia, I mean, she would say his dissents were very spicy to her well-reasoned decisions, yeah. but the secret sauce those two had, it never they liked each got other. personal.
0: Yeah, they, they made, had a, a deep and abiding affection for each other, and they loved the intellectual pairing. They did they that. They it kept their swords sharp.
1: They did that, and then the thing that was just wonderful to see was that um, the family got together and were friendly and uh, but you know another part that I think a lot of people don't realize when you're on an appellate court, whether it's the d c circuit the other Appeals courts or the Supreme Court, it is inherently supposed to be collaborative
0: and collegial,
1: and because you are all together, and often is collegial.
0: Yeah, I think. Well, what I've heard about you know Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, which was just a shit show from start to finish, and so many reasons. All over the place why he probably wasn't the best person for that job at that time was the friendship that's developed between him. And I think it's not Sonia Sotomayor, I think it's Elena Kagan actually reached out and took him under her wing to show her, show him, you know, how to the best things in the dining hall and all the rest of it. Have you eaten in the Supreme yes. Court dining hall? Yes. Like, I have too. It's yes, really, really yes, an experience. I have.
1: But um, more than that, what also happened um, when Kavanaugh was uh, appointed, Justice Ginsburg made certain that in her speeches she thanked Kavanaugh so much. He was the first justice that hired an all-woman law clerk staff, and what that did was put the numbers over so at that particular time frame there were more women law clerks than men on the Supreme Court, but also what Justice Ginsburg was concerned about was she lamented that the process was not the one that she went through. Yeah, Where she was given respect, it used to be, and actually yeah. Lindsey Graham, I heard him recently, is basically saying, you know, there are consequences to elections, and one of the consequences is that Trump the got president, the president's get, but what uh, Graham was talking in terms of this current vacancy was saying is basically if you have very qualified applicants they should be given due respect
0: yeah it seems self-evident but it's not
1: isn't it awful that we have to keep reminding ourselves that that's yeah. you know i don't know i
0: worry about this country in those ways in september or uh, january 6 now it's been termed uh you know a peaceful protest. and i mean there was nothing peaceful about that I it like was that, that, uh,
1: oh, legitimate yeah. public discourse, is legitimate how it was the framed. The Republican
0: National Committee, that's yeah, headed that, by Mitt Romney's niece. Yeah. but there's who, been pushback
1: uh, on that as well. Um, yeah, I don't really think the RNC spent...
0: really has that much power now. It's Trump's party; he can do with it what he what he wants.
1: You know, and uh, you know, one of the things that we had talked about at one particular point was the difference between Watergate. And now, yeah. I mean, what with Nixon, although he certainly had a following, was not a cult figure, not or in way, and not the same way, yeah. you know. And also, the other big difference when Nixon left in disgrace, he left. Yeah, there was none of uh, the These idea of and-, and I can't imagine where he was a constitutionalist that he would ever have condoned trying to find a way of uh, thwarting the peaceful transfer of of, power. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, this particular person has no problem with that. There's a great book by uh, Kurt Anderson, who's a very funny writer. He's founded Spy Magazine with Graydon Carter back in the 80s. But he's, you know, uh, takes the... 30,000-foot view of our culture, and he wrote this book called Fantasyland, a 500-year history of blah-blah grifters and crackpots, and that isn't the subtitle, but it's something to that effect. And it's like, there's always been that element in our culture, going back to, like, the know-nothings, you know, splintering off from the Whigs and the Northern Democrats and all their cosmic order, the Illuminati conspiracies, and even before that, these small towns in America and these religious revivals would sweep through and these charismatic preachers, many of them, like Jonathan Edwards, were really good, but a lot of them were just grifters and con men. And There's always been that element in our culture, but it's only now, and I think through the hastening of social media and the immediacy of all that, that they've been able to coalesce into an effective organization. Because you don't need a majority in this country, you just need a very committed minority. And now they, you know, this 30% or whatever has basically been, been able to grab hold of the reins.
1: Well, you know it's interesting to me, too, is, again, um, not that long ago, we all heard the same news, the same facts. Now we don't do that. Our yeah, news we're in is our silos. so siloed. Yes. It really is, but... Um, uh, you know, kind of switching subjects here, personally, um, you know, I've, I you can get very, very discouraged, particularly if you're a student of history and government and uh, looking at some of um, the attempts to subvert and become more authoritarian. But no. also, what I have found personally is that, um, What I've tried to do is really reach out into the community and find ways where I really, really can help. Yeah, that's a great
0: segue because I definitely want to talk about the kind of person that you are and that you represent as a fairly recent arrival. You've been here with 10 uh, years? Uh,
1: no, we were. it's full-time 2015. Oh, really? Goodness. Yeah.
0: You seem like you've been I know. on the scene for a while. <laughs> but you definitely I came right about in. it the right way. Yes, you did. <laughs> you didn't come here to change Ojai. You came here to let Ojai change you.
1: Well, I... It, for both my husband, Bill, and I, we are thrilled to be in Ohio because both of us, you know, and this is some of our background growing up in a small New England town. Our parents always were very active in causes and giving back. That was yeah. the big thing. What we're all so fortunate and grateful that we've had these opportunities. What can we do to give back? And luckily, our son, Matt, daughter-in-love, Aubrey, and our three grandkids moved to Ojai. And wow. we were living in L.A. at the time and coming up here and visiting so often that we thought, oh, let's just buy a weekend house. And that's what we did.
0: Did you get that Ojai moonstruck feeling, the mystique? Oh,
1: you know what? No, I will tell you what. how I started to get. Because we were computing back and forth from L.A. at the time. I got very involved with many in my neighborhood of um, stopping the AT&T cell tower <laughs> from mm. coming in and being put in the middle of a residential neighborhood right over a kindergarten. So I got to meet some incredible people worked with them and I found I was going um less and less back to Silver Lake yeah. to, loving here and then what really made a big difference is um I saw a a newspaper article that said that the Ohio Women's Fund was hosting um, a get-together where I could learn about becoming a member
0: oh yeah and, so that was their introduction uh, to Karen Dan and, and Karen Peggy Russell and,
1: and Peggy and Therese Hartman
0: yeah Therese and to Therese Therese
1: friend. and I became very good friends and she said you should be on the board of the Ohio Education Foundation and that's where not only with OWF but OEF I met my really good friend Tiarza And then I was. Another
0: friend of the pod.
1: That is right. And then um, again, I was looking at the wonderful work, the Bravo. uh, The the music band. The music festival. So so got involved in that. And now with the hospital.
0: (laughs) Isn't this amazing that a community of 8,000 some people has such an incredibly sturdy social infrastructure? And it seems like small towns everywhere had maybe not quite the sophistication and glamour of, like, the Ohio Music Festival, but there were always, I mean, my dad was a grave digger and a farmer and had, you know, volunteer firemen and the American Legion and, you know, like, organized the Memorial Day parade, which used to be a big deal in our town because, believe it or not, New York used to be a swing state. We had Dwight D. Eisenhower in our parade one year, and we had John F. Kennedy, like when he is just a junior senator from Massachusetts, and anybody that was on presidential, our town only had like 700 people, but it was like a big deal, our Fourth of July, or Memorial Day parade, just to just to have that, you know, when I get to Ohio, I'm like, oh, I recognize these people, and I recognize what they do, and how they go about it, and how they all come together, and how... There's nothing that's more, you know, politics has no match for the bonds of charity and philanthropy and volunteering and civic engagement and all the rest of that.
1: But I couldn't agree with you more, because I grew up in a uh, small town, which actually is uh, touted as the cranberry capital of the world. It's on Cape Cod, I it, thought. It's, it's uh, actually Middleborough, Massachusetts, which just 30 miles south of of Boston. But right next to Plymouth, Massachusetts, yeah. and we really, uh, it, it was a very cohesive community, even though, um, it, it, and I think I learned a lot by growing up in a small town, yeah. because you get to know people, even if they don't agree with yeah. you. You can see my theme here. And yes, again, well, mine too. Yeah, and I. This is why again, um, and I'm going to go back to the Ohio Women's Fund. What I love about it, it's not. And you are the president. Right I now. I have just stepped down. I'm okay. now on the government. That was your farewell letter that I <laughs> that saw. That was it's my so farewell. Thank you. Projects
0: and it was like what eighty grand and
1: eighty-five thousand. 80, yeah, we, we were able to divide give out to seven grantees this year, which really helps the Ojai community. And it's just a marvelous group of women um, that have banded together and uh, vet different grantees and vote on who to collectively vote and select who the grants will be given to.
0: a a lot of uh, overlap with what we do with our Rotary Club.
1: Exactly. And we have a lot of excellent Rotary women on the grants committee here. But one of the things that, again, which you can see my theme here is how do we go beyond the divisiveness? and figure out ways to bring people together and honestly, sometimes it's a step at a time, but with the Ojai Women's Fund, we have a huge tent where it does not matter what your worldview, your political view is at all. What matters is, is that you want the best for the Ojai community and Will uh, come in and uh, give your time, vote time, your membership money because yeah. that's how it's like a the share, grants. right? Like a thousand dollars, but you can well. That's it together if with you're an friends. individual, but you're in a giving circle, and really the minimum entry is one hundred dollars. And then if you have ten in the group, it's like a minion, like a
0: Jewish congregation. You got to have ten. Is that right? The, I, the I don't units, know. That. Yeah.
1: But so consequently, you're not ever in a situation where you're saying, you know, you're not in my tribe. Yeah. We have everybody under that big tent that bands together. And I think has just done amazing work in terms of who would have thought in just six years of giving we would have raised over a half a million dollars in membership yeah. funds to be able to give that out to our that's community. remarkable it's it's just remarkable and I saw
0: the testimonials from some of the grantees and in a in a big you know scheme maybe half a million dollars compared to the problems that we have in this world isn't gonna Make a dent, but for those people and those organizations that are scrapping and just getting by on fumes and energy all the time, it's 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 a miracle. You
1: know, it's a it's a wonderful thing for the grantees, but it's equally wonderful for the members because yeah. uh, what happens is that that um, for the votes on the ballot, you have two grantees in each of five categories. And it gives the community the opportunity to see the needs of the community. And even if you don't, you know, obviously we will give the grants out, but independently it's given all of us an opportunity to see where we want to give our own money additionally.
0: Oh, yeah. because. Nothing to stop you from saying, that's such an awesome project, how how can I?
1: And we've done that. Yeah. We've done that. And then also what has been so exciting is that we really have reached out into the community to um, make and, and done a lot of interviewing with past grantees um, and applicants to try to make certain that we have we have eliminated any barriers to entry so that people will feel comfortable applying. Yeah, we and not re-
0: thinking it's like too onerous a set well, of requirements. That,
1: so. That's a good point because when we were doing our focus groups, we realized that there could be a difference from grant ones that had grant writers versus ones that were really, exactly, and what did we need to do to level the playing field. And what we did this year uh, was re-revise the application. We had two wonderful grant co-chairs, Catherine Meek and um, Jeannie Fuller that worked on that and made it so much easier. And we did not just give grants to programs. It was also for operating expenses.
0: Which people don't really and understand. That that that's People got to so eat. They got to pay their electrical bills. And
1: sustainable. And yeah. then the other part about it, of course, we're very, very proud of this. This is this year. We reached out, and everything was in Spanish.
0: Oh. Were there applicants from the Hispanic community? Yes. That's one of the difficult, knotty issues that we deal with with Rotary is trying to be more representative. And there's like a something of a, I don't know what kind of barrier it is. It's not necessarily language. We do have great infrastructure going through like Javier Ramirez, who's the mm-hmm. principal of Chaparral School. And we just, uh, our Rotary Club, we have Dr. Skanky Humanitarian Award went to this – woman who's like really involved at every step of the way with the children trying to get them into a college path so there is some of it out there but it's constant you can't it's
1: definitely constant and what we're trying to do too is um, develop um, relationships between current grantees and others so that they will see an opportunity where maybe one could work as a fiscal sponsor for a group that is not a 501c3 and bring that in and partner.
0: That's very important, that collaboration that goes on. And
1: uh, we were very, very happy to hear from two of our grantees this year that they hope to set up a collaborative grant going forward or application. Yeah. application.
0: That's awesome. Plus, it gives them an opportunity to start thinking about other projects and other needs. And these are the people, really, with the boots on the ground. and We go about our routines. We really don't face those needs all the time and so on. Oh, I also wanted to talk about your husband and his brilliant career, because getting through the Coast Guard Academy is a big deal. I was in the military for six years, but I was just an enlisted guy. Yeah. I shouldn't say just, but, I mean, he was a captain, which is like an 06 in the mm. Coast Guard, right?
1: That's it. That's true.
0: So, that's, that's up there. Full bird colonel, we would call him in the Air Force.
1: Yeah. uh, Well, of course, I'm going to think uh, Bill is extremely special. (laughs) Um, And and one of the things, too, that's so important to know about Bill is that how incredibly supportive he was of my career. We basically had double careers and two children. 17 months apart and a lot of juggling uh, yeah and we um, did a cross-country careers Boston Washington D San Francisco and Los Angeles and um, Bill Has had just a fascinating career in the Coast Guard, and we were so fortunate. I mean, we definitely planned this out, but the Coast Guard was accommodating, where we were able to have, um, I would have to say, co-equal careers. Even though when you're a Coast Guard officer, you know you're going to have to pick up and move yeah, I mean, where you have been assigned, wow. but Bill did um, as a as a Coast Guard lawyer. Is that um, he was able to have uh, extremely important legal leadership positions uh, uh, in both in uh, D.C., Boston, back in D.C., and back in Alameda where we lived Hmm. uh, prior to moving down to Southern California. He was the Coast Guard's chief military judge. Wow. So, um, but also, all- Could he
0: handle the truth?
1: (laughs) He definitely, (laughs) he had some really tough cases. He definitely did, and uh, he did them uh, extremely well. so you can tell I'm very proud of him.
0: Yeah, it's interesting cases. I'll bet there's like books to be written, John Grisham-style novels about some of those.
1: It is, it's like, it was, Can you
0: describe some of the cases that he might work on? Because I'm imagining maritime law, but it could he be did, much he less certainly, than that.
1: When he, he certainly did maritime law for... Uh, you know, He was involved in some of the major oil spill cases that oh, was up man. in Maine. He was involved in... Uh, the Russian seizure of a fishing trawler off of the coast of uh, Massachusetts. I
0: vaguely uh, remember that.
1: Yeah, he he had some. And then uh, he definitely, when uh, he was the Coast Guard's representative to the UN over in London. Wow, fascinating. And we got to go over there. I mean, it was uh, fascinating. So he
0: so uh, got to... Argue cases in front of judges with powdered wigs.
1: And, and no, he actually, he was the one that was helping them do law of the sea analysis. The so, British, I always yeah. feel
0: maritime law was an extension of British sea power because they had the power, they made the laws.
1: I and Some of them, I think, are pretty archaic yeah. <laughs> to do that. And so that was really interesting. But probably one of the... Uh, uh, billets that Bill had or one of his duties is he, when we lived in the Bay Area, uh, Bill was head of Group San Francisco and we lived on Yerba Boina Island, Island uh, right off the Bay Bridge. We had a gorgeous yeah. home that overlooked the Bay. The real issue is we had two teenagers that learned to drive while there, and their driveway was the Bay Bridge.
0: Whoa. Oh. So they just jump right off the deep end. I'll
1: have to tell you, the both of them are terrific drivers. Yeah. Well, (laughs) they're uh, either going
0: to be terrific drivers or they're going to be long gone.
1: It was uh, nerve-wracking for the parents. Oh, man.
0: (laughs) I remember how scary that was, teaching my kids how to drive. It's like I never want to go back to that state of anxiety again.
1: No, yeah. it uh, it was, and then we actually were living there when the earthquake occurred.
0: Yeah, uh, 1988, the, uh, during the World Series.
1: That's right. And so uh, my office was in San Francisco. I knew I had to get home to Yerba Buena Island. I walked across the Bay Bridge in my high heels oh, with no. a
0: <laughs> wonder bra- No, are no, I what I did is
1: I decided I was not gonna go in the middle bridge. I was gonna go up and over on the top of it.
0: Oh, that'd be even scarier. Uh, well
1: what I didn't realize was how many expansion grids there were, Brett. And I mean and it was all I was like, look, and I do not like heights. So I took off my high heels and off I went off across the bridge had one woman that was just not with me and we went and then kind of my funny story is I went and took those high heels and bronzed them <laughs> and I have a sign that said these shoes walked across the bay bridge
0: during <laughs> the earthquake wow yeah so um that's about it you've been very generous with your time I think we can wrap it up now. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, just
1: thanks so much, and just to say again, I am absolutely thrilled to be living in Ojai.
0: Yeah, me too. It's a really wonderful place. This uh, conversation is a big part of that.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Hey, everyone. Just thinking out loud. I just lost a close family member a few weeks ago, my cousin Donnie, who was an old school bachelor farmer in upstate or western New York where I grew up. And I wrote a piece about him which ran in Dunkirk Evening Observer, which would be our hometown paper. I also posted it on Facebook. But I think if you read it, you'll have a glimpse into a vanishing way of life, which I feel very privileged to have been part of. It was a lot of hard work, but there were many rewards. And my friendship with my cousin Donnie was chief among those. Anyway, just thought you should know. And that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.